Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Luke is the third book of the New Testament. So you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and then you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke chapter 5, and then verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, and that he there would be Jesus, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been lying, what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today let me pray father we we ask that as we look at your word this morning as we see who jesus is presented to be who he understood himself to be who those who are saved understand him to be fathers we see him and his work father we would that you would just remove the scales that we would really see him that we wouldn't misunderstand him that we wouldn't underestimate him, we wouldn't misuse him. Father, we would know he's the Lord and Savior of all. We would trust him and rejoice in him and give you glory because of him and what he's done. Father, we pray that as we see the opposition arising to Jesus and the reason for it over the next couple weeks, we pray that you would help us to understand in our own hearts where we oppose him and his message that we would repent and trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus is often a misunderstood character, isn't he? Or man. He's often a misused person. And, and because underestimated doesn't have missed before it, I'll quote our former president, he's a misunderestimated man. The world understands him. The world understands him, or rather misunderstands him, as either a good moral teacher or just some kind of plain charlatan, depending on who you talk to out there. Various religi religious and political groups misuse Jesus. They misuse him as a tool to prove their point, to win a debate to affirm their own religious or political ideology to get you to vote for their candidates. My favorite example of how he's misused by religious and political ideologies today, though, is, 
is how Jesus is seen as the sort of ever-tolerant, never-condemning figure, right? He would never, Jesus would never point out how someone else's ideas are wrong. It's sort of the ideology that's out there among people. He, people will say this to you. Do you think that calling someone else's religion or idea false is very Christ-like? You ever had that one? Look, if you want to know whether it's very Christ-like or not, turn to Matthew 23, not do that right now, and read that, where he says to you, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, those are religious leaders, you hypocrites. He even says to him, you go over land and sea just to get one convert only to make him twice the son of hell that you are. That's not complimentary. Okay? Christians tend to underestimate Jesus. Christians tend to underestimate Jesus. We see him as less than he is. We don't see him as being everything as being about him and everything as being for him. So um, we, we miss just how much we really need him. That's what Jason and I deal with all the time in counseling is how much we miss how much we need him. How incredible it is. We miss how incredible it is or underestimate how incredible it is to be united to him through faith. How central he is to our whole faith. So for example, let me give you some example. We may see Jesus as like an actor in a story. And he's in a story of how he came to save us and he's an actor. But we become the main character somehow in that story. So how does that, how does that happen? Well, just ask yourself this. When you come to hear a sermon or you come to read the Bible, what's your primary question? Is your primary question, will I get something practical from my life today out of this? Or is your primary question, will I see and know Jesus better? Because that tells you who you think the main character of the story is, doesn't it? I'm not saying asking about practical living isn't worthwhile or helpful. Those things are good. But if that's your preeminent concern, and not whether I see and know Jesus, then you flipped the gospel on its head and made it a story about you and not him. Or, we underestimate Jesus as Christians when we see Jesus as helpful to our salvation. He was helpful to our salvation, but a little less, less helpful than our own faithfulness. A little less helpful than our own faithfulness. What do I mean by that? How do I see that lived out? I see it lived out when you're questioning your salvation, okay? And you're burdened by sin. Does that happen to you guys? Anybody? Right? When Satan is tempting you to despair, what's your tendency? Do you survey your own record of faithfulness to answer that temptation of despair? Or do you say, you know, upward I look and I see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin? See, what's the answer? Is he helpful to your salvation? but it's really all riding on your faithfulness? Or, or, or is he everything? Is he your salvation? We, we um, underestimate Jesus as powerful to save our friends, don't we? He, he, he's powerful to save them, but he's a little less powerful than my own words and deeds. He's a little less powerful than their will. And, and here's how that comes out. We fail to tell friends about Jesus 
because we're afraid we won't say the right thing. As if us using the right words is what's going to get the job done. As if the power resides in us and not in him. Or we fear that they might notice that sometimes we sin. Right? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I want to tell this person about Jesus, but they've seen me, they know me, and if I start saying something, they're going to be like, who are you? Is that, does that happen to anybody else? Right? Do you think it's your example that saves people or the power of Jesus that saves people? See, does your example give credibility to your words? Yes, it does. But does your example have the power to save anybody? No, it doesn't. Paul says, doesn't say, for I'm not ashamed of my lifestyle, right? What does he say? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For in it, it is the power of salvation for all who believes. The gospel is. As a result of all this, we, we tend to put Jesus in this little box of our faith. He's good for Sundays. Well, well he's at least good for a couple Sundays a month. Okay? And He's good for when times get rough. Or he's good for helping me have a nice family. Or he's good for cleaning up my messes. Or he's good for helping me decide who to vote for. Or he's good for holidays. But he isn't the Lord and Savior of all things, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created, are sustained, and will be restored. He's not that. The Jesus of the Bible, though, is everything. You guys hear that? He's the Son of God. He's the King. He's the Savior. He's not just first on our list of priorities. He is our life. He doesn't just let us in the door of salvation. He's the whole house of Christianity. It's all about Him, through Him, and for Him. So why do I drive at that at the beginning of this text is by way of introduction? The reason I do is because our passage today and the passage we're going to look at next week and the week after that, in those passages you're beginning to see people taking sides with regard to Jesus. They start choosing up sides. Up till now you're hearing about Him. Now at this point today in the passage in Luke, people start to choose up sides. Some people remain in the middle ground for a little while. But by the end of this gospel, by the end of this gospel story, we'll really only have two groups left. And here's who they are. The first group is those who look to him in faith. And because they look to him in faith, they see him for for all he is, and they forsake everything for him. The second group are those who reject him and eventually call for his death. Those are the two groups by the end of this story. So I want to use, I want you to see these Two main themes in this passage. So don't you see? Here's who they are. One, how some people rightly see Jesus as Lord and Savior and are so radically shaken by this that they'll do anything to get to Him. And they'll do anything in their power to get those who they know who need Him to Him. And they rejoice and glorify God for Him. And the other theme you're going to see is how some people, especially religious leaders, see Him as a problem and are radically opposed to him. So two groups. So I want to get to these themes first by looking at the story with you, and then here's what I want to do. I want to show you five lessons that we learn about Jesus, really, from this first story. So look with me at verse 17 so we can walk through the story together. On one of those days as he was teaching, 
Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. In other words, Jesus is in a house, he's teaching, and there's all these Pharisees and teachers of the law there. They've come. These are not guys who like Jesus. They've heard about him, that he's a rabbi, and so they're showing up on the scene to hear from him. They want to hear what he's saying. They've gathered around. They've come in all their nice clothing with their nice robes. Here they are in the room sitting around. The crowd is packed in. And they had come from, they're sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. In other words, he was gaining so much attention from the Pharisees, from the teachers of the law, that they're packing it in. Who are these guys? We're going to deal a little bit more with the Pharisees next week, but let's just, for now, put them in the category of they're your religious conservatives. I don't mean politically conservative, although in that time they would have been considered that as well. I mean they're your religious conservatives in the sense that theologically they're conservative. They believe the Bible's true. They believe in angels and demons. They believe in the resurrection of the dead, etc. That's who the Pharisees are, the teachers of the law. And they're packed in. And the power of the Lord was with him, with Jesus, to heal. In other words, as we've seen through the text, the Holy Spirit has been on Jesus, anointed him, is working powerfully through him. And the power of the Lord is with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So here's the scene. The house is packed. The doorway is packed out. You can't even get the doorway. There's crowds overflowing outside. And there are some men saying, we've heard about this Jesus who teaches and this Jesus who heals. We trust him. So what we need to do is we need to get our paralyzed friend on a bed, which is like a mat. We need to put him on it. We need to carry him into Jesus. We've got to get him to him. And it goes on. Verse 19, But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine this scene. Packed out room. Pharisees and religious leaders who are very formal guys, okay? All decked out, sitting in this room. Room is crowded. Can't get through the doorway. Crowd outside. And these guys are saying, we've got to get our paralyzed friend of Jesus. We have to. Got to get him there. But there's no way to carry him in through the door because it's packed out. There's no way we can get to him. So what are we going to do? We're going to go up on the roof. We're going to climb up on the roof. Now, what are these roofs like? Okay? What they did in that time when they, when they had a roof is they would take and they would take um, you know, your wood beams and they would build this, construct this, this roof structure and then they would put thatch over it. right? And they would begin to build up mud and thatch on top of each other until they had about two foot thick, or two feet thick of mud okay, and thatch. Right? So imagine, that's a couple feet thick of mud and thatch, then that dries. Now at this time of year, when there, there would have been grass growing all around it. Okay, so this isn't like um, they went up there and they just took off a little tile. Okay? The way this is being discussed here with Theophilus, these guys got up on this roof and they had to dig a hole in it. They had to remove a section of the roof. And they had to remove a section of the roof large enough to put a man through it. So you can imagine this scene as they're all sitting in the house and Jesus is teaching and healing 
And all of a sudden, these guys are so desperate to get their friend to the feet of Jesus that they are actually up there digging a hole in the roof. Can you imagine you're sitting there and hear these guys? And as they're digging and breaking through, all the dirt and all the junk is falling on top of these religious leaders, right? They have to be growing frustrated. And this whole scene is taking place. I've had distracting things when I'm trying to teach, but no one's tried to dig a a hole in the roof yet, okay? That's distracting. But these guys want to do it. So they're digging a hole in it big enough to get this man down through it. They dig this hole and they lower the man down through. And I don't exactly know what that looked like as they were trying to bring this man down through the hole in the roof, but they got him to Jesus. And everybody, of course, is paying attention now, right? How could you not? If someone tore a hole in the roof and lowered him down, somebody down right here, we'd all be looking, wouldn't we? Okay? Verse 20. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, now, now, mind you, there is a plural that includes the paralytic, paralytic man. He's also believing here. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Stop there. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I want you to imagine the scene. You have a friend who's paralyzed. You've dug a hole in the roof so that your friend can be healed of his paralysis. And now you lower your friend down through the roof, put him down in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. What? What? Sins are forgiven? What, what about healing him of his paralysis? We didn't drop him through the roof to heal him, forgive him of his sins. We dropped him through the roof so you'd heal his paralysis. But Jesus signals us to something that Jesus finds far more important, far more important than your temporal, than your temporal physical health he's much more concerned with this man's eternal spiritual condition much more concerned with that so he looks at this man and says your sins are forgiven you way more important than that i heal you of your paralysis far more pivotal to you than i heal you of your paralysis your sins are forgiven you jesus is doing a second thing here as well because What he knows is the Pharisees and teachers of the law are all sitting around the room watching as this man is lowered in. And these religious leaders are wondering, what is Jesus going to say to him? Paralyzed man comes down. They're thinking, okay, we're waiting for a healing now. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And he knows instantly that he's going to irritate the religious leaders. Okay, It's almost as if Jesus sort of looks around the room at the religious leaders and thinks to himself, Check this out, right? <laughs> Your sins are forgiven you. And they're, oh, what? Blasphemy. And that's what they say. Look at the next verse, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great question, because no one can forgive sins but God alone. Other men have healed people. Because God can work through people to heal people he's done it throughout biblical history moses has done miracles jesus healed people that isn't the big surprise the big surprise the one thing none of these men can do is none of them can look at him and say your sins are forgiven you as if they have the authority to forgive them only god can do that and they recognize that claim 
They know what Jesus is saying. He's claiming for himself divinity. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, and some people say, um, well, Jesus was, um, it shows his omniscience here, the fact that he knows all things. I'm not sure that that's what it shows. The fact is, if you're, in a, if you're at all socially aware, and you're in a room, and uh, you know what the Pharisees are going to think about you saying your sins are forgiven, and you declare your sins are forgiven, and then you see all the religious leaders grumbling among themselves, you can probably figure out that they're not happy with what you just said, right, without being omniscient, okay? Unless you're a male, then you might have trouble with that, all right? But if you're a woman, you'll know, right? Okay? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Right? Why are you questioning me in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? Now, this is an interesting question Jesus sets up. Because what is easier to say? It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven you, isn't it? Much easier. Because if I tell you I have the authority to forgive sins and your sins are now forgiven you, I have, you have no way to disprove what I just said, do you? They're either forgiven you or they're not. There's no way to disprove that. But if I say to you, I have the ability to heal you, rise up and walk, it's easy to disprove me just right there, isn't it? Because if you don't rise up and walk, guess what you found out about what I said? It's worthless. Okay? So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. What's interesting, though, is it's not easier to forgive sins. It's easier to do the healing. Because only God can forgive sins. So Jesus says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk. But, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Major statement about himself. I'll deal with him a little bit. His authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. I can't imagine, I, I, just, I just would love to have been in this scene as the paralyzed man is believing Jesus can both forgive his sins and cause him to rise up and walk. The Pharisees don't buy any of it. They think it's all garbage. I can't imagine what it would have been like for the man as he's laying there on the mat, paralyzed. He's just been lowered down to the roof. And Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven you. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven to rise up and walk. The Pharisees are grumbling. This can't be true. This isn't right. The man's going, I believe it. And then Jesus looks down and says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. Can't imagine the paralyzed man must have been feeling as he felt the ability to walk come back to his legs and the strength to do so come back. And he stands up. He, you, you have to imagine that he rolled up that mat and sort of tucked it under his arms and winked at those Pharisees, right, and walked on out. Like, what's up now? <laughs> you know, you have to imagine he did. And he walked out glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Notice the response to all this. When they see Jesus for who he is, that he's the Son of Man that Daniel promised, which I'll look to in a minute, that he's the one who can forgive sins. 
He's the one who wants to forgive sins. But he's the one who can heal. When they see who he is and what he does, their response is to glorify him. Right? What does that mean? It's to rejoice in him. It's to give him credit, the credit he's due. It's to be thankful for him. And that's how they respond. Now, five, five things we learn about Jesus, or five lessons we learn about Jesus from this. Here's the first one. First one is this. Jesus is far more, far more than people realize then or now. Hear that? Far more than people realize then or now. He makes this statement in verse 21. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees are right to ask that question because God is the only one who can. And Jesus is saying he can. And what's Jesus attributing to himself? Divinity. He's saying not only am I a man like you, I'm also God. And then Jesus goes on to make this statement and says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in that phrase, the Son of Man, he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7. And I want you to hear Daniel chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to hear this quotation. It's in verse 13 and 14. Daniel's talking about a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the of, ancient of days, that's the Father, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Remember what Jesus is attributing to himself? He said, That's me. That's me. I'm the king. I'm the one whom the Father has given all authority in heaven and earth. I'm the one who has the authority to forgive sins. I'm the one who all people and nations and tongues, I'm the one who they will all bow down and worship. That's me. And I forgive sins. Rise up and walk. See, Jesus is God. He isn't one option among others by whom you may be saved. He's the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father except through Him. There aren't other options because there aren't other gods. Hear that? Just one. One God. Second issue. Jesus saves... Jesus saves all those who see him for who he is and look to him in faith. Hear that? Jesus saves everyone who looks to him in faith. Okay? Everyone who calls the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, will be saved. Everyone. As are, so here's the question. Are you someone who, who doesn't believe in Jesus? You don't see him the way these men saw him? Where they're going to rip the roof open to get to him because they recognize who he is? Are you someone who has not been born again? In other words, you haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You're not looking to Jesus in faith. Then today is the day of salvation. Now's the time to recognize that first 
you are a sinner and you deserve God's condemnation. Then you recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for you on the cross, that he lived perfectly the life you failed to, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death for you. And then you look away from your sin, so you turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness. That's your attempts to justify yourself by thinking you're somehow good enough. You turn away from that, and you turn to looking to Jesus and saying, he's my hope, he's my righteousness, he's the only chance I have. You look to him. He will forgive you right now. If you just look to him, if you confess your need for him to you, he will forgive you right now. If you look to him, you will become a child of God who has eternal life, who's forgiven, who's counted as righteous. Because of what Jesus did. Not because of your looking. Your looking is just a receiving. It's just an acknowledging of what he already did. But if you do that now, he'll forgive you right now. You don't have to go get your life together first. See, once you start getting your life together first, you're starting to depend on yourself again. Just depend on Jesus. Third, Jesus' work in your life elicits worship. Jesus' work in your life, if you see him for who he is and what he's done, that brings about worship. Joyful, God-glorifying worship. See that in verse 25 and 26. How do they respond? With worship. See, these guys come to him. They look to him in faith. They trust who he is and what he does. And he forgives them. And he counts them as his own. And then how do they respond? They worship. They worship. They glorify him. You see, it doesn't cause you, when you see Jesus for who he is and what he does, it doesn't cause you to run to some kind of slavish fear of God where you're always wondering, is the father just sitting there with the hammer waiting for me to do the wrong thing so he can just on top of me? That's how a lot of people live. They live in fear constantly. They think the Christian life means, I got Jesus to forgive me, okay, coming in, but now the father's happy with me as long as I'm good. But as soon as I mess up, he is waiting with his hammer or his fist behind his back to smack me because he wants to put me that is not that is not the story the new covenant promise is when god says to you i will not relent in doing good to you hear that you're my child you're my son it gives me pleasure i take pleasure in doing good to you you know what when you sin look back to me Recognize I'll forgive you for that. Recognize that my son's sacrifice on the cross was enough to cover that. Look back to me. Don't flee from me. Trust me. When you understand that you're a child of God whom God delights to do good to because of Jesus and Jesus alone, it gives you a freedom, doesn't it? It gives you a joy to worship him. It gives you desire to obey him, not because you're afraid of his reaction if you don't. It gives you desire to obey him because he's already pleased with you. You're off the performance track. Jesus performed perfectly in your place. And now you're just obeying out of joy and thanksgiving. Because it's good. Because he's good. The grace of God 
in Jesus cause you to sing how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. We'll see that more next week. Fourth lesson. Jesus' gospel requires men to take sides. Do you hear that? The good news requires you to take sides. Some will side against him, particularly those who are religious and self-righteous. The religious and self-righteous. That might surprise you. It isn't the people who are out there in the world sinning it up that are more likely to take sides against Jesus. It's the people who are dragging themselves to church every week who are raising their children to be good moral citizens, who are voting for the conservative Republican every week, okay, every time an election comes around, those are the people who are more likely to take sides against Jesus because they're so caught up with their self-righteousness, so caught up with it, that they think they have no need, that they're already good to go. Who is he to say I'm a mess? We'll talk about that a lot more next week. A lot more. Five, if we see Jesus for who he really is, we see Jesus for who he really is and ourselves for who we really are. Okay, Him for who he really is and ourselves for who we really are. We will do anything in our power to get ourselves and our friends to his feet. Anything in our power to get ourselves and our friends to him. What do these guys do? They know who Jesus is, and so they will climb up onto a roof and dig a giant hole in it so they can get their friend to him. So how does that take shape in our lives? See, where do we find unbelievers, people who need him to bring to him? Let me tell you what you don't need. You don't need the church to start a program where you can go out and meet unbelievers, okay? We'll meet every Saturday, and then on those Saturdays, what we're going to do is we're going to go out and find unbelievers for you to talk to, okay? We don't, we don't need that. Well, it takes shape in your life in the fact that God has done this. Let, I'll give you three words just briefly. He's put you in a particular location. Acts chapter 17 talks about the fact that God has appointed, appointed the times and places where men shall live. He's appointed it. If you go on in that passage, it says because men are groping around in the darkness. What does that mean? It means you don't live in a particular location by mistake. It isn't an accident. It's intentional. God has put you in the city that you're in in spite of all of your complaints about Bakersfield and in the neighborhood that you're in for a reason. It isn't a mistake. He's put you there because there are people around you who are groping in the darkness. They don't know Jesus. And they're all around you. You don't need to go out looking for them. We don't need to have programs to find them. They're all around you. They're your neighbors and friends. Your location. Second, your vocation. You know what I mean by your vocation? I'm talking about um, what your calling is. Whether that's you're a college student That's your calling in life right now for this four-year period of time or depending on how long you're going, eight years or whatever it ends up being, okay? (laughs) 
And that's not because of graduate degrees, sadly, in most cases. But you're, you're out there, and that's your calling right now. You know what? Here's your chance. There are people all around you who don't know Jesus. God doesn't have you there by mistake or by accident. It's intentional. If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's your calling. God has you around other women who are stay-at-home moms, usually saddled with fear and guilt and shame. They're groping around in the darkness. Tell them about Jesus. If you're a stay-at-home mom, God has given you children who don't know him. Tell them about him. Guys who work, you have your jobs, you're out there in careers, your vocation. It's not an accident you're there. God has put you there for a reason because there are unbelievers all around you. Now let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you ought to, you know, deck your cubicle out with all kinds of Go Jesus stickers and, right, all kinds of paraphernalia and sort of freak out everybody around you, okay? All right, that's not what I'm suggesting, all right? How do you let people know about Jesus in your vocation? You work hard. That's your employer's time. You work hard and you're respectful. And you don't gossip about the other people in the office. Right? That's what you do. And then you get relationships built with people. And you start saying to somebody, you know, is, is there some way I could pray for you? Most people like to be prayed for, incidentally. You usually don't turn down that opportunity. Some way I could pray for Yeah, sure. Pray for me in this way. Okay, great. And then pray for them. Prove to them you can keep a confidence, and then what will happen eventually, because you're not the office gossip, is eventually they'll say, you know what, i got a problem. I respect this person. I'm going to come to them and talk to them. And then that's your door. You get a chance to invite them to your church or to your small group or a women's event or a men's event. Get the chance to talk to them about Jesus. They're all around you for a reason. Your recreation. Your recreation. Another area. Your kids play sports if you have kids. Maybe you are involved in some kind of activities where you run into other people, right? It's not by accident. It's not by mistake. These are people who don't know Jesus, a lot of them. It's your chance to tell them about them. By the way, if you're playing sports, by that I don't mean that you get some big tattoo that says Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I'm going to crush you in football to show that right now. That's not what that verse is about anyway, Okay? <laughs> That's not how you do that, okay? <clears throat> I'm not kidding. Sorry if you have that tattoo, you know. <clears throat> we love you. That's about contentment. Just remember that and go with that from now on, okay? Now the popular thing is the Hebrew tattoos. Everybody's a tattoo in Hebrew. Like everybody knows Hebrew. It's, I don't know. It's sort of, like, sort of like this sort of weird Christian way to say you have a past, right? That was rough. You get a Hebrew tattoo which I don't know how that shows you have a rough past. I don't know a lot of guys out there in the world that are getting tattoos with verses in Hebrew. Okay, anyway, what, what do we do with the unbelievers around us, right? They're all around us. We don't have to go looking for them. Just care for them. They're all around you. Pray for them. Beg God to save them. They're dead spiritually. I've said this to you guys before. I got this from Charles Spurgeon. It's not my idea. If you walked into your room 
or into the room and you found your child laying there lifeless, dead, you would grab hold of your child and you would plead with God to give them life. You would. I know I would. I'd be begging Him. Well, these people are spiritually dead. They're in that condition. Are you begging and pleading with God to give them life? To save them? That's what you do. God didn't put you around all these people so you could blindly walk through life as if everything's about you. And you're so busy with your schedule and busy with your things that you don't have time to think about anybody around you. And so you want the church to schedule a program so you can meet some unbelievers where God has programmed them in your whole life. He says, beg me to save them, and I will. That's what we have to do. These people are dead. They're going to hell eternally. That isn't pleasant. We don't talk about that because we like that thought. We talk about it because we're saving people. That's what the word salvation is. You're being saved from something. And that isn't an uncomfortable life or a bad marriage. That's hell. That's the eternal, unrelenting wrath of God. Who wants to be under that? And how can we mindlessly and aimlessly go through life and miss all the people around us who are going there? Because we're too busy to pray for them or tell them about Jesus. You see, what roof do I need to tear apart to get my friends to the feet of Jesus? What roof do I need to tear open? Is it the roof of my own apprehensions of people not liking me if I tell them about Jesus? Is it the roof of my fear that I won't say or do the right thing? Is it the roof of my own busy schedule that prevents me from being able to talk to people about Jesus? What is it? You need to tear a big hole in that roof and bring your friends to the feet of Jesus so that he can say to them, rise up and walk. Your sins have been forgiven. Is that what your friends to hear? You want them to hear that, don't you? God's put them all around you so that you can do whatever is necessary to get them to the feet of Jesus so that they're saved. And put you there by mistake. Are you anything like these guys? Do you so see who Jesus is and the con- needy condition of the people around you that you're willing to climb up on a roof and tear it open just to get your friends in front of them so they can be saved? Then tear it open. You start with praying for them. Pray, plead with God. And then tell them about him. He'll save them. It'll be marvelous, and we'll rejoice. We'll glorify God together. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would do an incredible work in our own hearts so that we would see your Son as who he is, that we'd rejoice in him for who he is and what he does. And Father, that, that we, would, we would stop going through life as if, these unbelievers aren't all around us who are, who are damned. Father, that we would recognize they're there, that we'd care about them, would love them, pray for them, that you would save them. Father, we take seriously your word and what it says, that it's true. 
But apart from Jesus, um, we're condemned already because of our sin. But that He's come to save us, to forgive us. Father, we pray for any in this room who don't know You, who aren't looking to Your Son in faith, who are trusting themselves. We pray that even now You would open their eyes the scales would be removed and they would see Jesus for who he is and for what he's done and they would know he's their hope and they would trust in him. And Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would see the condition of those around us. We would see how glorious and good your son is. We would not want nothing more than to, to find a way to get them to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.